begin this morning not only with an illustration, but a rather lengthy one. I don't usually do super long ones, but this one I found to be very interesting and is very pertinent to our sermon this morning. I'll begin with a question. What has become the most impressive footwear in recent history? Has any garment enjoyed a more impressive rise than the once humble sneaker? From fitness shoe to high fashion staple, the sneaker's ascent reflects some of the most significant pop culture developments of the last few decades. From the impact of advertising, mass production, influence of hip-hop, the NBA, and the masses. When the first sneakers debuted in the 1800s, they were themselves luxury items. With the high price of rubber and the working class's lack of leisure time, it was a luxury item. Someone says, but we've come full circle now. After the devastation of World War I, governments had to confront more than just the colossal, colossal loss of life. The war had demonstrated how physically unprepared their populations were for battle. Prompting a large-scale push for fitness, they began to see a rise in sneakers. As people rushed to the gym, Opportunistic industrialists started mass-producing sneakers, bringing down prices and bringing what had once been only the domain of the wealthy into the average person's locker. To set themselves apart, Converse, Converse Rubber Shoe Company, drafted basketball player Chuck Taylor. And you thought I was going to say Michael Jordan. They were going to improve their basketball shoe, the All-Star, in 1921. He wasn't Michael Jordan by any stretch of the imagination, but he gave the brand authenticity. It was the first means of endorsing the athletic potential and athletic promise of the shoe. The idea, if you see it on a commercial, it can make you jump higher. Now, by the end of World War II, the sneaker had lost what remained of its Victorian luxury associations. Everyone from school kids to workmen wore them for comfort, not status. But an uptake in conspicuous consumption and personal fitness fads into the 1970s suggests that the time was right for a sneaker renaissance. Sensing a shift, newcomer Nike created the ideal shoe for the me generation. Available in a number of bright colorways and an immediately identifiable logo, it was designed for those who wished to stand out on the dance floor track as well as the running track. The sneaker was segueing away from the simply being a fitness shoe to a fashion shoe. And then there was Air Jordan. Michael Jordan was just a rookie at the time, granted one with an Olympic gold medal under his belt, but that didn't stop 
Nike from signing him for a five-year endorsement deal in 1984. Best decision they ever made. With that contract came an exclusive new shoe for him to wear and promote, the Air Jordan. And if you've ever seen Michael Jordan play, that is a perfect name because he does have that ability to jump, and it seems as if he stays for, for moments in midair while the other teammate is now sinking because of gravity, and then he shoots over their head. Now, the red and black sneakers to match Jordan's Chicago Bulls uniform were initially banned by the NBA commissioner, David Stern, who mandated that shoes worn on the court had to be majority white. Jordan famously wore them anyway, and Nike paid the $5,000 fine after each game. (laughs) He became an icon of individuality, of bucking the trend, and the shoes that he wears suddenly became something that every guy wanted to have. The shoe's public release in 1985 is widely considered the catalyst for the modern sneakerhead culture a community of sneaker collectors and admirers who follow new releases with a dedication usually reserved for classic cars or Swiss watches. I personally remember the tests, somewhat scientific tests, to determine if people could actually jump higher with Air Jordans. If the average person couldn't jump higher, The investors certainly did with their proceeds. Now, since then, the sneaker business has become a maystay upon America and even the worldwide society of sneaker wearers. Adidas identified with the hip-hop culture. Prada prioritized aesthetics over athletics, and sneakers became part of fashion designers. There was a roller boat sneaker which even attempted to redefine masculinity. And today, Converse sneakers are one of the first popular throwbacks due in part to the never-say-die Converse cult. And in today's latest fad, Skechers sneakers and others have introduced themselves to suit and tie affairs. Well, you may be wondering why I'm reading that and why we're talking about shoes, but because today we're putting on another piece of the armor of God, and it has to do with the foot. And how important it was for a Roman soldier to have the proper footwear, not only to run, not only to travel long distances, but even in hand-to-hand combat. Because once a soldier was down... He was easy prey for his enemy. So we've been studying now the armor of God, and we looked already at the loins girded with truth, verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness, the second part, and now feet fitted with the gospel of peace. And I want to say the the whole idea of the armor should bring two major thoughts to us. Number one is that this 
This is the biblical way to engage in spiritual warfare, to put on these pieces. Not many of the things that we're reading in today's Christian society and magazines of how to defeat the devil. This is the scripture's instructions for spiritual warfare. And secondly, that we need to realize with these important pieces that this is not talking about a church picnic. This is talking about a church war, a battle against Satan and his legions. With that, let's read once again Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. That's all we're going to get through today. There's a lot to be said about it, and so we will. And it reads, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then it will continue on with more pieces, which we'll pick up next week. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You have truly given us everything, salvation through your Son, the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, a new nature, and now even the armor of God, protection against the evil one who is alive and well and called the ruler of this world. Father, we thank you for the way that you are protecting us and keeping us from the evil one. We are thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed his works, though he is temporarily ruling the world at this point. But you have also given us instruction of what characteristics we need to constantly have in order to live the Christian life without falling or being tripped up. And so we ask, Father, you would teach us from this important verse, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about our feet being fitted with the gospel of peace. Now, one of the things that I want you to note, if you're looking at your Bible, most Bibles, when they quote a verse from the Old Testament, it is capitalized. And each one of these has a capitalized phrase. In other words, each one of these is a quotation of Scripture. So we made a lot about Paul the Apostle as he's thinking about writing about this. He's looking at the Roman soldier and he's seeing the Roman soldier's pieces of armor. And that's where we're getting this picture from. He also found verses or was led to verses in the scripture that also talked about these certain pieces. And he thereby quoted them, making this a scriptural and inspired teaching. So from the loins of truth, last week we learned it was Isaiah 11.5. The breastplate of righteousness was 59 from Isaiah 17. Today we're going to see Isaiah 52 verse 7. When we talk about the helmet of salvation, Isaiah 59.17. And the sword of the spirit probably comes from Isaiah 49 verse 2. So the quotation of scripture is involved in this. And just let me say this for us as teachers of the word, that's exactly what we do. We go to the word to see what the word teaches us and we find verses that tell us about that. It's not candy coating our sermons or our teaching and we want to just talk about the the rotation of the geese migration 
We're teaching biblical solid truths with the confirmation of these scriptural verses. And so I'd like to go through this verse, and we'll go slow, and so we'll pick out most, if not all, of the words here. And I want to begin with the feet. Having shod your feet. And actually the word for shod, I suppose that probably is a good that's a good interpretation for us who live in Wyoming and we think of that with horses. But it's it's a it's a word that can be used. I think the word fitted is better. We go to a shoe store and we have shoes that are fitted for us. In fact, you can even go stand on certain machines now and it will tell you about your feet and what kind of shoes and what kind of insoles you need. But here we're talking about something very important, our feet and the feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace. Well, let's first talk about the Roman soldiers because this is the picture. So even though he has, the Roman soldier, he has his waist and loins girded, He has his chest protected. He also has his feet protected. They are very vital in battle, especially for these Roman soldiers in the time of the Roman Empire. For one, traction was required in swift marching. If you remember the Roman Empire, they made these vast roads so that their military could go from one end of the empire to the other to quickly Protect it from the onslaught of enemies, and it worked. But they had to have good shoes that they could do. I don't know if it was Converse, Nike, or Air Jordans. I don't know. But anyway, um, we also see firm footing was needed for hand-to-hand combat. I mean, you could imagine if you were fighting and you slipped, you would be down, and you have this heavy armor, and it would be very difficult for you to get up. And so that would be very, very dangerous. But even inside a chariot, as the chariots, you know, even on those roads, that was a little bumpy and there were some turns and you never know about horses and you don't want to be slipping out of that chariot either. So you required good footwear or footwear that was adequate for your traction. Josephus tells us a little bit about them. They talked about the Roman soldiers who had shoes. And he's looking at one particular Roman soldier. Had had shoes all full of thick and sharp nails. As had every one of the other soldiers. So they had these cleats. And here we thought it was football and the gridiron that we came up with that. No, it was the Roman soldiers. And yet there were certain circumstances where the cleats didn't work. And I suppose, just like we see with... Football players in the middle of halftime, they change the type of shoes that they have because of the, of the grass and whether it's slippery or not. I imagine that there were situations where these Roman soldiers had to put on different shoes and take care. It was very vital. It was a part of the armor. It wasn't just to keep their ugly feet covered. It was a part of the armor. Well, what about believers? Well, I think of two things with believers, with our feet. In the scriptures, we are told to walk, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and we are told to guard from being tripped up. Our feet need to be fitted with those things that will keep us walking and not veering and not 
tripping or stumbling or falling. We find in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, if you would turn there with me. Ephesians 4, 17. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, we see a lot of times Paul has talked about the walk, not the style of walk, but the manner of walk as a believer. And here he says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now he was writing to Gentiles and they know exactly what he meant. The old life, you are to not walk in that. You have a new nature. You are to walk after Christ and that is your walk. And so the spirit, one of the ideas of spiritual warfare Satan and his demons are trying to get you off that walk. They're trying to get you to walk like the world, for one, to make your testimony ineffective. But they'd like to see you fall. Once they get you strained, then you're off the path. Now you're where rocks and thistles and weeds are, and you can trip. We also see in Ephesians 5.15, Paul writes, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And so we're to think about our walk. We're to be uh, constantly thinking about it. And it turns out that that is one of the pieces of spiritual warfare. It's not just saying, I'm a Christian and I can live any way I want because I have freedom in Christ. You do have freedom in Christ, but that freedom is to live after Christ. That freedom is to be able to Hail Jesus' name as your Lord and follow after him. So walking is one of the things that can be impeded by temptation and spiritual warfare. Also, the idea of being tripped up. We must be guarded from from that, from the devil tripping up the believer. One of the things that we find out is in Peter, it says, You, therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Fall by falling into false doctrine. Fall by not living the Christian life. And he says, be on guard. And so in a sense, when Peter says, be on guard, it's the same sense in which Paul says, put on the piece of the armor. It's the same characteristic in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where the qualifications for an elder are given. There's some qualifications that you should not put a person in as an elder. One is a new convert. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, and, and do not put in a new convert. Why? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Meaning, he probably isn't mature enough to know that whatever good is done, it's done by God. And it's not because of us as men in there making decisions, because we pray before we start our meetings for the wisdom for those decisions, for for Christ to lead his church. But a new convert, not saying that he always will, but 
You know, we all struggle with pride, can fall, need to watch it. We need to be guarded from this temptation. And so Paul writes, don't put a young new convert in as an elder. Now, I want to make something clear here. Even though the Roman soldiers' footwear was for going long distances, traction, climbing, being on chariots, and even fighting hand-to-hand, there's only one job that we are to do with our footwear, and that is to stand firm. You remember the three times that this section talks about, here's what you do. In order to stay faithful, not fall, not be tripped up in spiritual warfare, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. In other words, the believer is not admonished to run either toward the battle or away from the battle. He is admonished to stand firm in it. And that's what these shoes do. That's what we're talking about, standing firm. Now, as it says, stand firm, and we're, we're reading all this, what, what is it that the feet are helping us to do? Well, we are f- fitted, our feet are fitted with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The preparation. I want to talk about preparation for just a moment, and I want to also talk about some views about it. First of all, the Greek word for preparation, Preparation is hetoimasia, and it means to make ready, it means to equip, and it means to prepare. So that we're supposed to put this on for our, on our feet so that we are prepared for something. What is it that we are to be prepared for? Well, I know it's the gospel of peace, but what aspect? There are two main views by good men on this. Number one, it would mean Be prepared for evangelism. Be prepared to preach the gospel. The second one is, be prepared by knowing about your position in Christ. Particularly, the one that brought peace between you and God the moment you trusted Christ. I want to talk about these. So first of all, let's talk about evangelism. And I really have been wanting to talk more and more about evangelism. Um, various things you see in our society, various things you see even in Christianity that, that makes me think as a pastor, I, I need to hone this. I need to clarify this. We need to know what is the gospel. When you ask someone, are you saved? And they say yes, and you hear their answer, you say, you're thinking to yourself, you don't have a clue. That's, that's not the gospel at all. I'm going to actually save that particular discussion for the helmet of salvation. But let's talk then about evangelism. This is when you are saved and you share the gospel with someone. And that's why it's so important that we have our members uh, be the ones who teach because we know them. We, they've come in and they've given us their testimony. We know they're believers. And that's the first step in order to share the gospel. And we want the gospel to be shared with every one of our studies, including the little children. We especially want the gospel explained in a very simple way to them. And then we want the gospel explained as we go out into the world and we have neighbors and we have coworkers. I mean, after all, most of us, Every one of us has someone someone else tell us about the gospel. 
Now, it may have been your family members, or it may have been someone else on the street that you don't even know, but I praise God for their boldness. So, the first view is to preach the gospel. And there's some commentators that, if you're reading this, I'm talking about the good ones, even the good ones we mentioned, but some of them are going to go right to this. They're going to say, this, is, this means that you have to evangelize. One of the main reasons that they say this is because of, it is quoting Isaiah 52.7. Paul quotes these verses for these pieces. The verse that he quotes for the feet being shod with the gospel of peace is Isaiah 52.7. I'll read it again. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. I love it. Great theological text here. And says to you, Zion, your God reigns. That is a verse about evangelism. It's actually, if you look at the context of Isaiah there, it's about evangelism in the millennium. And of course, we we have to wrap our minds around that. A millennium is after Christ returns. He's, He's going to be rescuing Israel. And Israel and all those who have placed their faith in Christ will go into the millennium. But then there will be people born in the millennium who need to come to Christ. And so the gospel needs to be preached in the millennium. And those people who are preaching the gospel in the millennium, Isaiah says, how lovely are their feet upon the mountains. And so this is one of the main reasons why there are those who think that evangelism is exactly what's being stated here. And it very well could be. It very well could be. Warren Wiersbe writes, We must be prepared each day to share the gospel of peace with a lost world. The most victorious Christian is a witnessing Christian. Let me read that one again. The most victorious Christian is a witnessing Christian. By the way, for several things, one is you can see that your priorities are right, you are spiritual. So you obviously are walking with the Lord. Secondly, if you're preaching the gospel, you are getting energized in serving the Lord. And thirdly, if you're preaching the gospel, you don't really want to to have a bad testimony because you've just told someone your, uh, your belief in the gospel, the word of God. So I agree with what he said. The most victorious Christian is a witnessing Christian. If we wear the shoes of the gospel then we have the beautiful feet mentioned in Isaiah 52, 7. Also quoted in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And by the way, there in Romans 10, verse 15, it also is talking about evangelism. Let me just read that quickly. And Paul is quoting that same verse. And he begins with, how will they preach unless they are sent? Well, there's no doubt he's talking about evangelism here. How will they preach unless they are sent? Meaning the Lord sending out individuals to be missionaries and and share the word. Or sent out even from your church into your community. But how will they preach if they are not sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news of good things. Now, let me continue this because I, I will be honest with you. We're going to talk about the other side in just a moment. And the reason why most, most of the good commentaries don't take it as evangelism, but take it as you are standing firm in your position in salvation is because that's where the context leads you. The context leads you there because the context is not about going out in a positive manner, a positive offensive weapon. All of these weapons, maybe, a, maybe some of them are partly offensive, uh, are, are more, mostly defensive. And the idea is that you're supposed to stand. That's the idea. And we're talking about spiritual warfare here. We're not talking about what we're to do in our service for the Lord, but we're here to have victory in, in spiritual warfare. That's what this is about. Let's let not lose sight of the topic, you know. You know, when you're having a conversation with people and either you or someone else gets off the topic. I remember John Ward. John Ward would always, if you were talking with him and you were talking about a topic and you got off topic and he, he'd just say, yeah, but let's get on the topic here. That's not the topic. I mean, he would, he would verbally remind you over and over that you were getting off the road. Well, that's what the context is about the position and salvation. However, however, I still am not against this idea of evangelism as one of the pieces of the armor. And even if it isn't, we are to do it. We are responsible to do it. And I got to thinking, you know, there is a sense in which evangelism is a weapon of victory over Satan. How about when you lead someone to Christ? Oh, my word. You have saved them from the domain of Satan. And they are now placed in the kingdom of the Son. So even if it's not a piece of the armor, it is a piece of the Christian life, a very important one, and it has its effect. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's Satan, the ruler of this world. And he's got all unbelievers already in his camp. But he has no problem making them worse, making them more evil. That's, he enjoys that. And as far away from the gospel as possible, even blinding their eyes. But when you share the gospel, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ as you're giving it out. Someone comes to Christ. They are rec- rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Wow, that puts a crimp into Satan's works. And you remember the other week when we talked about the screw tape letters, and it, it was a, uh, you know, a fiction, fictional um, illustration of how demons would work and how they would work in unbelievers' lives and in believers' lives. And then, of course, uh, the, the, there was an uncle who was instructing the nephew and the nephew was assigned to someone until the worst thing that could ever happen and that the person that he was assigned to became a believer. However, his uncle said, well, what's done is done. And it's not completely lost. We can now cause this believer 
to be tripped up, to fall, to have his walk impeded. And so you are doing a tremendous amount for the kingdom when you lead someone to Christ. And then I even got to thinking, I even got to thinking that, you know, even at times the gospel can be viewed as a defensive weapon. In 1 Peter chapter 3, believers are to make a defense of the hope of the gospel when they are asked. That's not an outward offensive move. That is a defensive move. It reads, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So I find myself almost arguing for this position, but I just, I don't want us to go away from here and saying, well, if I put on the armor of God, I don't need to evangelize. That's not what I'm saying. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. You must evangelize. We are commanded to evangelize. And praise God, somebody evangelized to you. But let's look at this other side. And I, as I, as I looked at commentators like Calvin, S. Lewis Johnson, one of the you know, great Greek grammarians and preachers, Ryrie, MacArthur, etc., etc., many, many others, they all take this verse as the believer's position in salvation. In other words, the result of salvation. Why would they do that? Again, it's because they're looking at the context. These men are driven in correct Bible study methods. You've, the context is king. The context is going to tell you what he means. Now, even though Paul quotes that verse, the context is you have to stand firm. I mean, Paul said it enough times in just a few verses that if you miss it, you're asleep and you're not reading your Bible. The idea here is that when we have reconciliation with God and peace with God, and you're affirmed in that as a mature believer, you are ready to stand against anything. You're ready to stand against trials. You are ready to stand against temptation. You are ready to stand against spiritual warfare because no matter what happens, you have peace with God. I may not have peace with unbelievers because you shared or I, you or I shared the gospel. You may not have peace with them, although you have nothing against them. You may even find yourself at times at odds with believers because of your your desire to evangelize, your boldness. It doesn't matter. What matters is peace with God. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But that's the idea. This is how you stand. This is how you keep your legs from shaking. This is how you slip. You stand because I have peace with God. And God is my protector. He's my rock. He's my strength. And that is how the believer stands. And by the way, you remember this began in verse 10. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your own. Well, this is one of the verses, the aspects that supports that. So this is supporting defensive weapons, standing firm, putting on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You may not know all the schemes. You may know many of them. 
We have addressed some. We will continue to address some, but I doubt that I will address all of them. And one day, please don't come back to me and say, well, thanks. Thanks, Pastor. You didn't say that one. That's the one that gave me trouble. Well, that's the principle. You stand firm. You put on the armor. And you're ready for everything, even the things you don't know about yet. That's what we're to do. Expositor's commentary says this. The sense would be that the gospel of peace with God, through which the believer himself has already been reconciled, is the whole thrust of it. It affords him a sure foothold in the campaign in which he is engaged. This interpretation is more suitable to the context. And again, that's where the, that's where the expositor has to go. And of course, it says in there, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. You remember when we talked about that? That verse in Ephesians wasn't saying, go out and evangelize. Even though there are many that say that, that verse wasn't. That verse was saying, you who were far away, especially as a Gentile, have now been brought near. You've been brought into a relationship with God. You have peace with God. You have been reconciled. I want to say just another thought, too, is looking at the NET Bible, um, where they make a lot of good comments on the Greek and the phrases They take this as the gospel that come or the preparation that comes from. In other words, it it is the idea by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace. And that is a possible interpretation. And so it's the idea that it's what has happened is what's going to make me stand. Now, Put on your armor, and you make sure that you still are evangelizing because that also is an aid. It's certainly an aid to those who hear. All right, so in conclusion to those two views, the first one, the first conclusion is our responsibility. Whether or not this verse refers to the believer's responsibility to evangelize, the believer is admonished in Scripture to evangelize. And we read many of those scriptures from Romans 10, 15, and 1 Peter. However, number two, the conclusion is the context. The context would strongly suggest that of the believer's spiritual warfare and his main responsibility to stand firm. Therefore, it suggests standing firm in the gospel, which has brought peace between the believer and God if you were to take either one of those or even both, I would not have a serious problem with that. I do believe being consistent, the second is better. Well, let's talk about the gospel of peace, that which we are to be prepared for, either by evangelism or by a position in salvation, our position in Christ, which also is the context of Ephesians. Go count how many times it says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But let's talk about the gospel of peace particularly the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel first of all. What is the gospel? And again, I think this is so important. I will be talking about this again before we're done with these pieces. But the the word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion. It's made up of two words, eu, 
Epsilon Upsilon, which means good. So it's talking about something good. Good what? Angelion, from the same root as angel, means a messenger. So it means a good message or good news. The gospel is good news. Now, what is the gospel good news about? One thing, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And the moment you trust him and him alone, you are forgiven and given eternal life. You are a sinner, but you can be saved. That is the good news. Now, if you get to talking with people and you say, well, what what do you think the gospel is? Be prepared. Be prepared to hear a multitude of answers. Well, let's turn. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And by the way, what I love about this is that 1 Corinthians 15 is from the resurrection chapter. Paul begins the resurrection arguments with the gospel. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. We'll go to verse 4. Now, it is the good news. It's the good news of salvation. It's not the good news that he got me out of trouble. It's not the good news that he he helped me get over temptation. It's not the good news that I was almost in an accident unto death, but he spared my life. Now, those are good things, but those are not the good news in the Bible. The good news is salvation, and Paul's going to explain it. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. There it is, the good news. It's about salvation. He's going to go on. Which I preached to you. That's what Paul did. He went around evangelizing, preaching, preaching the good news, which is the gospel, which is Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Now, let me just say something quickly. Just to know that fact is not salvation. Oh, I know that. I believe that. What, what has to happen is you believe that for yourself. It becomes personal. I believe that he died for my sins. It's the idea when you have the word believe in the Bible, it's not just a head knowledge. It means a trust, a forward motion. It's always a, a, an action that rests on Christ. And I like to think of it as the arms of your faith in moving toward Christ and embracing Christ as your Savior. You died for my sins, Lord Jesus. I believe that you died for me, a sinner. I trust you. I embrace you. I take you. I receive you as my Savior for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And by the way, the moment you do that, you are saved. It's not the moment that you're in some sort of turmoil and cry out, help me. He may help you, but that's not salvation. This is salvation when you cry out to him for him to save you and to be your savior. So Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Here we go. Which also you received. There you have it. It's not just you heard it, you received it. In fact, especially you received Christ as your Savior. You think of the Old Testament sacrifices. There had to be something innocent dying for someone guilty. And your sins were transferred to that 
innocent thing who didn't do anything wrong, and yet they were going to be slain. That's what Christ is, the lamb, the sacrificed lamb. Someone innocent, the only one innocent, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for someone guilty, me and you and the world. And so this is the idea when we we think of this, we receive it. We receive Christ as our Savior. Do you have a sacrifice? Yes, I have a sacrifice. If I die and I go to heaven and I stand before God and he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? It's because Jesus Christ died for my sins and I've embraced him as my Savior. That's the only answer to that question. That's the correct and biblical answer to that question. And by the way, that's a question we will ask you if you ever decide to become a member. Because we want to know that you know what salvation is. He says, which you have received, in which also you stand. Here's the word stand again. You stand in that. Your salvation stands in that. In other words, there's a hint of you don't say you receive Christ, and then years down the road you say, ah, it was just a fad, I don't believe in it. That's called apostasy, and apostasy is live and well in the church today, especially, especially under the heading of deconstruction. We're deconstructing our faith so that we can reconstruct it. Beloved, don't fall into that. They're deconstructing it to never construct it to the biblical orthodox faith again, again. Now, this is different. This is different from a person struggling. Doubts about salvation. We'll talk about doubts of salvation when we talk about the helmet of salvation. Someone, someone has doubts, or maybe, maybe I believe and I trust the Lord, but there's things I don't know yet. Maybe I'm not a, uh, a believer who's been around for a while, and, and uh, before that I was involved in, in evolution, and I was involved in all these things, and I, I believe it's creationism, but I just haven't been able to fully wrap my mind around it yet. Fine. That's what apologetics is for. Apologetics is really for the believer. It's very hard to do apologetics and talk someone out of their position and into faith, although it can. And and the reason is is because a lot of times they're not legitimate. They have a lot of questions. No, they don't. They have a lot of objections. But every once in a while, you'll find some with some questions. And if you can answer them, you could lead them to Christ. But the idea here is that you stand and you are, you are a believer and you, you stay a believer. I don't mean you keep yourself a believer. I mean you never turn yourself on the, uh, against the faith. And yet that is happening. Then he says in verse 2, that's just verse 1. You'd think that's the text we're studying this morning. He says, by which also you are saved. There it is. Beloved, you know what? The word saved and the word born again, those words, they've kind of become uh, pejorative terms anymore. or they, They're a joke, and people use those terms to refer to anything under the sun. But you know what? We can reclaim it. We can redefine it. In fact, I, I just wonder if that's not a very good way to start your evangelism. What do you, th- what do you think it means to be born again? What do you think it means to, to uh, be uh, saved and let them tell you? Ah, we have a conversation going here. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Let me tell you what it means. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you've trusted him as your savior. He saved you. 
once and for all. He saved you. He's forgiven your sins once and for all. He saved you. You have eternal life for all eternity. It's not a a short-term eternity. It's a long-term eternity. He has saved you. You are a new creation in Christ. And this is what the word saved means. And this is what Paul said. Look, it's the gospel that saves. Nothing else. And then he says a, a, con, a conditional phrase here. If you hold fast the word which I pre- preached to you unless you believed in vain. Number one, that does not mean you can lose your salvation. Well, you just lost your salvation. No, it doesn't mean it. It means this, that you only placed your faith in him for a reason other than a genuine sincerity to be saved. Maybe it was to impress a girlfriend. Maybe it was to impress a group of friends. Maybe it was, I don't know, you, I, I don't know. But if you walk away, it doesn't show that you've lost your salvation. It shows you, it shows you, sadly, that you never had it. You never truly believed, never truly trusted in Christ, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And here we go. Finally, Daryl, we're getting to the gospel. What is the gospel? Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance. I love this. First importance. When he said he was going to go to Corinth, he said, I didn't want to go to Corinth for any other reason other than to make known Christ known and him crucified. The gospel. This is why this is so important. It's not important anymore. And it seems to be seeping into Christianity that it's not so important anymore. It's more important of your life. It's more important of your Christian social status of what you do to help people. Now, you ought to help people. I'm not saying that at all. But that's not of first importance. You know what should be of first importance is sharing the gospel. You know what's the matter with the social gospel? You help a lot of people, and when they die, they go to hell. Because you've never given them the gospel the f- of first importance. This is what matters, beloved. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Oh, my word. Paul was saved in the same way we were. He heard the gospel. Jesus Christ died for his sins. And, and actually, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who invaded his life, telling him that, that soul-saving message. And he trusted Christ as his Savior. What is it? Okay, Paul, what is it? Tell us, tell us this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You could just take that first part, Christ died for our sins, five words, that's the gospel. Underline it. Write it on the side of your Bible. Write it on the front of your Bible. Write it on a piece of paper, carry it with you. If someone says, what is the gospel? Pull it out. Christ died for our sins. What that means is, that he took our place, that which we deserved, which we could never pay in eternity in hell. He took our sin and paid for our sin, taking our punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, in our place. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where are we getting that righteousness from? Not from us, but from him. The moment we trust Christ, our sin is imputed to him. 
He died on the cross for it. It's applied to us. We're forgiven, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Beloved, this is the standing that you must have if you are going to stand against the wiles of the devil. You need to be fully affirmed that you are a believer, fully affirmed that you have peace with God. That's what matters. That's what matters. And we go on here just quickly now to finish this out. It's according to the scriptures. There is no greater source of authority than that, beloved. How do I know this is true? How do I know this is the true gospel? Because it says it is. The Bible says it's according to the scriptures, and that's how you live as a believer. That he was buried, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We'll be talking about the resurrection pretty soon. But that beloved is the gospel so when he says preparation for the gospel there is that aspect that the believer receives that is a basis and foundation for him to be able to stand firm i'm a believer i'm a believer well let's look at this idea with peace because yes you certainly bring peace to individuals who you share the gospel to and you know even though you may be a little apprehensive about evangelizing but here you go and you evangelize you know you walk away with a joy and a peace because you have done god's will but this is a peace that the receiver the the believer receives the moment that he trusts christ i'm going to talk about peace with god and the peace of god and i know we've talked about it before but we haven't ever talked about it in this context First of all, peace with God. An unbeliever does not have peace with God. You could put on your bumper, smile, God loves you, but a sinner who reads that does not have peace with God and shouldn't be smiling. He can only experience peace and the love of God by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's the sinner who's reading it. That was you, the sinner, before you came to Christ. And then, what does it mean that we're sinners? What does that mean with God? He's holy. We're sinful. There, the two will never meet. God will never fellowship with sin. Now, God so loved the world, and so there's a sense in which he loved the world of sinners and gave them an opportunity to come to Christ, but he cannot fellowship with them until they come to Christ and you have the wrath of God upon that person. This is the gospel. This isn't I'm trying to impress you with strong uh, uh, pulpit-pounding preaching. This is the gospel. It tells us in the beginning of Paul's gospel in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin is death. It's that punishment which Christ took. But then, when a believer trusts in Christ, as we've already talked about, then that individual has salvation and he has peace with God. And that is a positional truth. What's a positional truth? Remember, we talked about that, chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. It's the idea that when you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and maybe that's all you know, that's fine. You are saved, and now you have all these spiritual blessings 
these positions in Christ that are given to you, you can't earn them, you can't refute them, you can't lose them. They're given to you the moment you trust Christ. And peace with God and reconciliation is one of them. And this is how we stand. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith alone and Christ alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have peace. He may have loved us. He may have sent his son to die on the cross, but we had no relationship with him. We had no peace with him until we come to Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And when this happens... This can help you. This helps you stand in the spiritual warfare. How? Well, if I have peace with God, I know that I'm not trying to have to get God's uh, approval. I have that through Christ in the beloved. But it also means that now there are several things that are set up for me. Like one, 1 John, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit who's greater than he who is in the world. You, you've, you've got an, an advantage in the spiritual warfare. Romans 8.31 really says it. What does peace with God really mean for a believer? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what this does. That's what this idea of standing in your position in salvation, your position in Christ. And then there is the peace of God. And this is the foundation also. You can stand there because you're standing on your position of salvation, but you can stand there because somehow you have the peace that passes all understanding. You have peace because no matter what Satan throws at you, even no matter how it ends up, you have peace because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If God is for us, who could be against us? But there's two things in Scripture that I see that talk about the peace of God that we have that also helps us stand in the believer's spiritual warfare. The first one is the peace of Christ, Christ's peace. Christ gives us his peace. Well, I don't feel peaceful. Well, Christ is giving you his peace. Now, there may be things in your life that's keeping you from not receiving that peace, but... Nevertheless, that peace is there for you to trust in. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He gives us his peace, not the peace of the world. You know, I'm happy in the world if I catch the big fish. I'm happy in the world if I shoot a big trophy. I'm happy in the world if I, all of these things that I want to do, I'm doing, my team wins the March Madness. Um, I'm happy, you know, I have peace. And ha- no, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about that even in the midst of the worst temptation and spiritual warfare, even on that evil day, you have peace. And it's hard to understand. How could anybody have peace? When you're going through that, but you do because it's Christ's peace. So the believer's not to give in to fear and and get off of his stand, standing firm. He is to rest in Christ's peace. And secondly, through prayer. And this comes from Philippians chapter four. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter four? In Philippians chapter four, 
verse 6, it tells us not to be anxious about anything but to pray. And if we do this, God will give us the peace that passes all understanding. Meaning, how could someone have a peace at a time like this? Well, when it's the Lord's peace, he's not shaking in his boots. He's not scared. He's not unaware of what will happen. He has full peace that his will will be brought about. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then if you would, drop down to verse 7. And the peace of God, that's it. We already have peace with God. This is the peace of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love this. I love the context of this. First of all, it's prayer. So what do we do? We're standing. We've got our loins girded with truth. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. Now our feet are shod in the position of salvation. What do we do if we're still fretting? You pray. Prayer may or may not be a piece of the warfare. It doesn't matter. Piece of the weapons, the armor of God. You do it anyway. It could be considered that because it works. And so we are to pray about these things and pray about the difficulties and pray about the temptations and even temptations that haven't happened yet. But you know that there are certain situations in life that when, when you are, find yourself in them, there's going to be a temptation for something. Temptation to get angry. A temptation to uh, not share the gospel. Anything. You pray about it beforehand. The, the idea here for what says do, do not be anxious, the word anxious can mean care and concern. Now, there's a positive side of that. It's okay. But what this means is don't be overwhelmed with worry or be debilitated in your walk. Because of these things and you're so fearful, go to God with them. Receive the peace of Christ. And then it says, it says, the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. In other words, you're not trying to work it out. I'm going to guard myself. I'm going to guard myself. I'm going to, no, you, you do this. And God and his spirit and the answer to these things it will guard you. It will be, you'll be able to say, well, you know, it may, it may bother me, but it doesn't bother me as much. You know, I'm able, to, I'm able to go on with my Christian life now. I'm able to go on even though this spiritual warfare is going on. And spiritual warfare is meant to stop you, stop you in your tracks. Don't go any further for God. That's what, that's what Screwtape said to his nephew demon Wormwood, stop them. Get them distracted with something else. But you're going to be able to keep on because your heart and your mind is going to be guarded with that peace. This is what I think it means when he says your feet fitted the preparation of the gospel of peace, meaning the result of salvation in your life the peace of God in your life, the reconciliation and your position in Christ, this 
is what you stand on. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If Paul spent three chapters telling us about our position in Christ and all of those blessings, wouldn't you think it would be like fantastic for him to close and say, and finally stand in that position in Christ, even in spiritual warfare. Let me close with an illustration. It's an illustration that comes from the book of Josephus. Remember Josephus's description of the footwear of the soldier? He's now going to talk about that soldier. The soldier's name was Julian. He was a Roman hero, but he had the wrong footwear. But there was one Julian, a centurion, that came from Bithynia, a man, he was of great reputation, whom I had formerly seen in that war, and one of the highest fame, both for his skill in war, his strength of body, and the courage of his soul. This man, seeing the Romans giving ground, now this is when there was the fight between the Jews and the Romans at the temple, and the temple will end up being destroyed. This man, seeing the Romans giving ground, and in a sad condition, for he stood by Titus, the commander at the tower of Antonia. He leaped out, and of himself alone put the Jews to flight, when they were already conquerors, and made them retire as far as the corner of the inner court of the temple. From him the multitude fled away in crowds, as supposing that neither his strength nor his violent attacks could be those of a mere man. Accordingly, he rushed through the midst of the Jews as they were dispersed all around uh, and killed those who he had caught. Nor, indeed, was there any sight that appeared more wonderful in the eyes of Caesar or more terrible to others than this. However, he was himself pursued by fate which it all not possible that he, who was but a mere mortal man, should escape. For as he had shoes all full of thick and sharp nails, as had every of the other soldiers, so when he ran on the pavement of the temple, he slipped and fell down upon his back with a very great noise, which was made by his armor, And this made those who were running away turn back. Whereupon those Romans that were in the tower of Antonia set up a great shout as they were in fear for the man. But the Jews got around him in the crowds and struck at him with their spears and with their swords on all sides. Now he received a great many of the strokes of these iron weapons upon his shield And often attempted to get up, but was thrown down by those who struck at him. Yet did he, as he lay along, stab many of them with his sword. Nor was he soon killed, as being covered with his helmet and his breastplate and all those parts of the body where he might mortally be wounded. Also, he pulled his neck close to his body till all the other limbs were shattered and no one dared come to defend him, and then he yielded to his fate. 
Now, Caesar was deeply affected on the account of this man of so great fortitude, and especially as he was killed in the sight of so many people. He was desirous himself to come to his assistance, but the place would not allow him to, while such as could have done it were too much terrified to attempt it. Thus, when Julian had struggled with death a great while and had let but a few of those who had given him his mortal wound go off unharmed, he had at last had his throat cut. Though not without some difficulty, and left behind him a very great fame, not only among the Romans and with Caesar himself, but also among his enemies. Now, this suggests it's possible to have all the pieces of armor, of God's armor, put on and put on correctly, but not have your feet shod correctly, and it could become extremely dangerous. It is possible to have all the pieces of the armor in place except for the preparation of the gospel of peace fitted on one's feet. The consequences can be disastrous because we are not talking about sneaker sales here. We are talking about the believer not being tripped up or falling spiritually, but standing firm in the midst of spiritual warfare against the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for each piece is important. And while we might not think that which protects the believer's feet is all that important, I hope today that we have shown differently. I pray, Father, that we do evangelize, but I pray as far as one of our pieces of armor that we stand firm in our position in salvation, that we have peace with God. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Thank you, Father. Help us as we come back again to talk more about the armor of God. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.